it, Sardis was kind of like, uh, you know, one of those guys who played high school football but should have went pro and can't let it go, if that makes sense. Uh, so it, it was in the past. This was the 6th century B.C. Um, they had been a, a capital city of the kingdom of uh, uh, Lydia and later, center, uh, later the center of Persian government. In the New Testament times, they had sunk to relatively uh, obscurity. Thank you, Nick. William Ramsey, a historian, described Sardis as a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its sustainability to the present conditions. So their, their one claim to prominence, though, was that they provided a meeting place of several Roman roads. And so this was important industrial center in the home of woolen and dyed goods, which is going to make sense for what Greg's going to read here for us in just a little bit. So it was located some 50 miles east of Ephesus on the northern spur of Mount uh, Timolus, overlooking a broad and fertile plain of the Hermus. The Acropolis, which is basically this, this rock, rock face, basically, uh, was nearly a perpendicular, rising 1,500 feet out of the lower valley. So I don't know what they're called, uh, but you see them in like Arizona and stuff sometimes. They've got a name for them. Like the rest of the, the places is low, and then you've got this thing that kind of comes right up out of it, and it's, it's got a tall part of it. What's that called? Sounds good. The Butte. So it's kind of like that on the other sides, right? So just a, a sheer cliff wall, and then, and then one side that's, that's, that's more open, okay? So it provided a natural fortification is why I'm telling you that. It was described uh, to the local Asiatic uh, I'm sorry, it was dedicated, not described. It was dedicated to the local Asiatic goddess, uh, usually referred to as Sybil, who was identified with the Greek uh, god of Artemis, who was the patron deity who was believed to possess a special power of restoring the dead to life. Again, that's going to matter for what we're going to read in, this, in the scriptures here just in a little bit. So uh, Sardis was the city of wealth and fame beforehand, and it kind of petered off a little bit, and they were living on that. But uh, during that time... Uh, Corisius, uh, gold was taken out of the river that was, that was close by there. Uh, jewelry found in the local cemeteries indicates great prosperity, and it was Sardis where gold and silver coins were first struck for the Roman Empire uh, and for those, those uh, other countries that were, were part of that too. Um, and so it claimed to be the first to discover the art of dyeing wool as well. All right? So all that matters for what we're about to uh, have read to us. But I just want to remind you, too, that if you would like to sign up to read, uh, please feel free to do that up here after service, because Revelation 1.3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So Greg, if you would bless us, please. To the angel in the church of the church of in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, 
for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in dust and white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would do as you have said and that you would bless us in the hearing of it, bless us in the reading of it. God, we ask that you would send your spirit upon us, that we would apply this word to this church, to this church, uh, that from back then it would still stand for us today. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we invite you to have your way with us this morning. It's in your name that we do pray. Amen. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the kids down then if they would like to go, for those who would like to go. And uh, for the rest of us kids who are, who are staying up here, I'm, I'm going to read a couple things out of, uh, uh, I have commentaries about different scriptures and stuff like that. I want to read to you what some of the commentaries uh, say about uh, this. So in 2014, Tom Rayner, president of Lifeway Christian Resources, wrote a highly acclaimed book titled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Its genesis was a popular blog article with the same title. In this book, Rayner identifies several fatal causes that put once alive and vibrant churches into the grave. And they include, ready? Treating the past as a hero. Refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Moving the focus of the budget inward. Allowing the great commission to become the great omission. Letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. Seeing the tenor of the pastors decreasing. Failing to have regular corporate prayer. Having no clear purpose or vision. And obsessing over the facilities. Another uh, compliment, if you will, to Rayner's work there uh, is a work titled, When Does My Church Need Revival? This was Steve Manley. He highlights six telltale signs that a church is standing at the brink of death's door. They are, one, the church is plagued with disagreements. Two, the preaching is ineffective. Three, few can remember when a person was last saved. Four, God's supernatural power is never seen. Five, God is not praised regularly. Six, known as being called into God's work. And unfortunately, this appears to be what's happening to this church at Smyrna. It is my prayer, I hope it is your prayer, that this is not what is happening to the church at Allegan Bible. Um, but we need to be in prayer and vigilant that that does not happen. So I want to start by saying, do not substitute a religious life for a righteous one. I think that's what we all need to take from this. So if you take nothing else, and if you're not a note taker, that's the main point, right? So I've served it up for you. You can sit back and you can just enjoy the rest of this. Uh, but hey, do not substitute a religious life for a righteous one, okay? The first point then, if you are a note taker, is uh, this question really, does your reputation exceed your reality? In Revelation 3.1, he says to the angel in the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Now, Chuck Swindoll, I'm sure you're familiar with that name, says that the church at Sardis is a morgue with a steeple. I like the way he put that. Uh, Vance Havner adds, uh, she had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. That sounds like an insult if I've ever heard one. Man, I'll tell you what. Uh, But the point is this. Does your reputation exceed your reality? Well, uh, what does this mean, you might ask? Well, I, I hope it's self-explanatory, but I want to I share some things that should be your reality, that should be also your reputation. Because here's the fact of the matter. Everyone in this room may have the reputation of going to church. I hope that your family knows that about you. But the dirty little secret is, those in your family also know other things about you. And so I hope that they would equivocate. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word. Sometimes I use the wrong word, and Elisa corrects me later. I don't know if I equivocate. You Google it and then tell me if equivocate is wrong. Sometimes I think they equate. I think that's the right word. Sometimes they equate our, our, our going to church with perfection, right? And then we're, we're hypocrites when we're not perfect. Well, we know, and what we ought to be able to tell them too is, listen, I go to church because I know that I'm not perfect, and I need God's word to continue to sanctify me, and hopefully that's it. But uh, here is your reality. It should be your reputation. One, you are royal by birth. Did you know that? You are a son or daughter of the Most High King. You are a prince or a princess. So for all you, all you big girls out there who were once little girls who really wanted to be a princess, guess what? You are. You are. Whether you've got your Prince Charming or not, I don't know. But I can tell you this. You are royal by birth. That's what God's Word tells us. He tells us that we are sons and daughters. He tells us we are adopted into his kingdom. He tells us that the righteousness of Christ, the Son of God, is imputed to us. It's it's deposited into our accounts, meaning that when God looks at you, he sees a beautiful, bright, shining son or daughter that has been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And so I want to ask you, does that reality reflected in your reputation. Second, the Bible tells us that you are a skilled warrior. Maybe this speaks more to the men than the women. I I don't know, but I want to tell you it's the truth. The Bible tells us that we have been given the full armor of God, that we have been given a shield and a sword. He has called us to do battle. He has called us into the fight. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. He says, train your body, not as somebody who's beating the air. Paul uses sports metaphors to try to help us to understand the race that we are to run. You are to be a skilled warrior. That is your reality. I hope that is your reputation. What does that look like? Well, are you praying fervently on behalf of others? Did you know the fight that we fight is a spiritual one? We can't always see the enemy. We have to rely on invisible weapons, weapons of the word. Are you wielding it appropriately, and are you going to him who can actually do the fighting for you? Are you going to the one who conquers? Another reality for you that I hope is reflected in your reputation is you are a gifted servant. Now, maybe you feel like this one lacks some of the the pomp of the other two, but I want to tell you it doesn't. This one might actually be better than the other two, in my opinion. Did you know that every single one of you is special and unique in the way that God has formed you? Here's the thing. Everything in your, and and I don't mean this, I I see some of you smiling. I don't mean this in any kind of the, the new age, you know, whatever. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're all special. That's fine. Whatever. But there's. Right, uh, but but here's the thing. I mean this. Everything you've experienced in your life up till this point, right now, this moment of where you're hearing this message, every single thing, whether good, bad, or ugly, God in His power is redeeming in you to then use that as a gifted servant for someone else in their life to show them who Christ is. And you have the ability to do that in a way I can never even imagine. And same for everybody else who's sitting in this room who's sitting next to you. Did you know you are a gifted servant? That there are spiritual gifts that we have all been given. Scripture tells us that. And some of us have other ones than other ones, and that's what makes the body great, right? I'm, I'm so thankful that my body isn't made up of all eyeballs, right? Can you imagine walking barefoot through a parking lot if your whole body was eyeballs? It would be absolutely torturous, right? You would never leave the house. But the body is made up of different parts because we all do different things. And Scripture talks about this. You may not see, well, I'm going to paraphrase what Scripture says, okay? So, sorry. I've got to always, uh, you probably know that, but I just want to be very clear that what always John says isn't exactly what the Word of God says, but I'm, I'm pulling it from there, okay? You guys understand that, I hope, right? You can't see my pancreas and my liver, right? I surely hope. But you would surely know if my pancreas or my liver wasn't functioning, right? Because there would be signs, there would be symptoms of that. Brother or sister, you are a gifted servant. God has given you a ministry, and I don't know what that is. Not for all of you, anyway. But he has given you gifts and a ministry that only you can fulfill. I hope that is also your reputation and not just your reality. You also are a loving neighbor. And I don't know about you, but I think this is one of them that I, I struggle with. The older I get, the more crotchety I become, the more judgmental I seem to be, right? I hope that that's not true for you. But it is our reality that we are to love well. What did Jesus say? He says, you're going to know, they're going to know that you're my disciple by how you love one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you this parable, right? And then Jesus goes on to tell him that. And, and if you know the parable, which one was the neighbor? Well, the answer to that, the ultimate answer to that is everybody's my neighbor. Anybody's my neighbor. And it doesn't matter if they've wounded me or harmed me. They're still my neighbor in God's eyes. And it doesn't matter if we have a different political view or if we have a different socioeconomic view, if we have a different uh, mental capacity or, or different skin tone or any of those things, that they are our neighbors and we are to show them love. Does that reality reflect in your reputation? There's something that they have us do during Celebrate Recovery. It's called a spiritual inventory. I want to ask you, when's the last time that you took a spiritual inventory? When's the last time you took a spiritual wellness check? When is the last time that you got on your face before the Lord and you asked him earnestly, Lord, search my heart, O God? So does your reputation exceed your reality? I guess you could say on here, does your reputation live up to the reality that you claim? So what hope do we have? Because I don't know about you, but I look through this reality and I think to myself, okay, well, I'm not living up to the reality. My reputation, I don't think, matches the reality that you say that I should have. 
I want to tell you that the love of the Savior for the church is utterly amazing. Not only has he redeemed her, he again and again goes out to rescue her from even self-inflicted wounds. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And then he goes on to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So what is the hope for us in not living up, in having our reputation not be our reality because we cannot live up to that? The hope is, do you have faith as small as a mustard seed, brother or sister? You see, even with a faint pulse, nay, even with no pulse at all, our God is the God that brings the dead back to life. And so uh, going on to our next point, real revival requires some things of use. Now, if you're a note taker, you notice something a little bit strange in your notes. I think what is a little abnormal, and I've given you just a section of verse. I've given you a section of verse because you can, as we go through this, you can underline the words that make up what real revival requires for us. And in fact, if you're a good Berean, I could stop right now. You could go home with that verse. You could pour over that verse, and you could pick out the points that I'm about to say, because you have God's Word and you have the Holy Spirit. But real revival requires us to, first and foremostly, if we look at Revelation 3, 2 through 3, which for those of you who don't have the notes, I will put those up there uh, in front of you too, so you can have them too. Real revival requires you to what? Firstly, what is it? What do you think it is? Wake up. Let's just be honest, right? Is our nation more Christian today than it was when it was originally founded? And I hope everybody says a resounding no. And so how are you doing with that? How are we working for that? Not just the nation, but you in your own sphere. I, I cannot control who goes into the White House or who goes into the government ship. I mean, I, I can cast my vote, and I, I plan to do that. You ought to do that too as, as, a, as a good Christian, as a good citizen of this nation, exercising your freedom. That's all well and good. But what are we doing to make sure that we are interacting well and allowing our reality to be our reputation? We must wake up. There are so many things that seek to lull us to sleep. Jesus told his disciples several times, watch and pray, right? He tells us in this text, wake up. Why? Because if you don't, I'm going to come at a time and you're not going to know, you're going to miss out is what he says. Well, I'm paraphrasing what he says. You're not going to know when he comes. Now, I'm not saying that we should be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. But we ought to walk through our day multiple times with coming back to the remembrance and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the expectation of, what if Jesus came back right now? Would he be pleased with what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm watching, what I'm engaging in with the people that I'm hanging out with, with the things that I'm doing? Would, would he be honored and glorified by what's happening right now? Or am I in my slumber, in my stupor, kind of sleepwalking through this day and through this life? Man, Satan is so... I, I don't know the whole story. Um, it's, uh, and I just had it and I lost it. It's that the Pied Piper. Are you guys familiar with this, this story of the Pied Piper? I'm going to paraphrase it for you, but uh, basically this guy uh, comes to town with this uh, fancy wind thing that he plays, and uh, there's a bunch of rats there, so they hire him, and he's like, okay, I'll play this song, and he plays the song, and the rats follow him out of town, and he drowns them all in the thing. He's like, all right, now it's time for you to pay me. 
and they don't pay him, and he's like, okay, fine. And so he plays a different song, and all the children follow him out of the town, and they're never seen again. Now, good night, children. Sleep well, right? I mean, that's, that's real fairy tales. I don't know what happened to all this. Everything winds up well. I mean, it's just... That, and by the way, that's a great fairy tale and a good lesson. Like, don't follow strangers, kids. You might never come home, okay? So like, hey, there's good lessons here. You should pay attention to that. But Satan is good at playing the songs we need so that we are led astray. That's the point of that. Thanks for going with me down that road. You see, I, I talked about this city, and I talked about this city on purpose. What you need to know about this city is, twice before, two different times they were sacked, they were sacked because they weren't paying attention. They had this sheer cliff face, right? Seemed like it was impervious. You know, what the, you, you know what the opposition did? They sent in a group of spies to climb up. They climbed up the 1,500 foot tall cliff face. They climbed up and got into the city and opened it from the inside, Trojan horse style. And it happened twice. This is what Jesus is saying. Where are we sleeping? Where is the church sleeping? Gabe can tell you afterwards, there's a great Casting Crown song that goes with this, doesn't there? <laughs> second thing. So if we're, if we're reading the text here, so wake up. What's the second thing that we need to do for revival? What is it? Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is doing triage. If you walk into the emergency room and you're now not spurting blood, you're going to have a seat because somebody else has something that's more important than you. This is just how it is. Any kind of medical environment, that they'll tell you that. You have to make choices based on who is the most likely that you can save. And sometimes, you know, and if we've remembered history for, through things where there's been huge earthquakes or like, I know everybody probably, 9-11, like there was a lot of injuries. There was a lot of stuff that had to be done and you just have to make decisions. And so what he's telling us here is we need to do spiritual triage. We need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. We can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. What area of your walk is on spiritual life support? Do you even know? What part of your life spiritually is almost dead? Remember, I talked about these things. You have a royal birth. You're of a skilled warrior. You're a gifted servant. You're a loving neighbor. And I asked you, when's the last time you took a spiritual inventory or did a spiritual wellness check? What is your prayer life like? How can you pray more or be more fervently engaged in intercession and in his will? And by the way, I want to be very clear right now because of what the text says. I'm not talking about you just doing more things. It's not what I'm talking about. My grandma, I don't know if she still does. There was a time that she did. She, she has this bowl of fake fruit. Any of your grandmas? have bowls of fake fruit. I don't know why or when that became a thing, but apparently it was a thing in, in some people's lives. And so you have these bowls of fake fruit. If I wanted an apple and I grabbed one out of that and I took into a bite, would I be satiated? No, I may, I may die. I don't know what's in that thing. And so I'm not talking about you just making more fake fruit to display for people. I'm talking about this so we can take a spiritual inventory, so we can Seek God and say, renew a right spirit within me. Bring me back to a place where I need to be. So I'm going to continue that. What's your prayer life like? He says, pray without ceasing. I'm guessing all of us, if that's our standard, we can improve. How often and in what capacity are you witnessing? 
And how are you going to seek to improve your witness? Yes, we can witness without words, absolutely. But people will not know Jesus without the proclamation of the gospel. Those who hear are saved. So I don't care if you give a track or if you brush up on your five points of the the gospel so you can share that with people or or whatever, or your three points or your circle diagram or whatever it is that the tool that you want to use. What is your service in your volunteering life? If you are a gifted servant, are you serving? Are you using your gifts? Are you allowing God to redeem your history or are you just feeling sad about it sometimes? Because he has things for it to accomplish. Your scars can be roses. Do you understand that? How are you stewarding your finances and your time? Where would you rate your Bible intake? I want to ask you, and I'm going to pose it this way purposefully, would others say that they think that you are intimate with God's Word? That when they have a biblical question, they know that you can find it because you're so familiar. You're so familiar with your sword that you know where the nicks and the dings and you know the places that need more oil rubbed on it. And you you know the the scabbard and and how it goes in and out and, and you know how to wield it well. I don't, that's not just for people who go to seminary. And you don't, here's the good news. I don't know if this is maybe a dirty little secret of the preaching world. You don't need to go to seminary, <laughs> okay? I, I, don't know if that, I, I don't know if I've said that enough to you all, but like, this is the weirdest job in the world. It's just the weirdest job in the world because you do not need, and I know some of you are going to be like, Pastor, we do need you. Okay, I get that, but like, for, like you don't need me in, the, in this instance. You don't, and you'd say, but we do. No, you don't. You can have other people that are studying Scripture, that are going to visit one another, that are sharing one another's burdens. You can confess sins to one another and not just me. This isn't like a do five Hail Marys and then whatever, your life, uh, some more, or whatever. Like, it doesn't, we can take turns preaching because I don't think in a room this size, I'm the only one gifted to speak. Maybe you're terrified of that. Okay, maybe that's not your spiritual gift, but maybe it is. So thank you for saying you need me, but let's just be honest. You, you don't, what we need is the body. What we need is one another, and I'm just one part of it. So yeah, I guess maybe you need me for that. I don't know. But I can tell you this, I need you. What practical steps are you taking to try to grow in godliness and in Christ likeness? Are we fasting regularly? Are are we are we going on spiritual vacations? Like to conferences or retreats or just or just when's the last time we just said today is the day where I'm going to shut everything off and just have silence and solitude? And just spend time praying and reading the Bible, and that's it. I'm just going to see what God says to me today. Some of you, even the thought of that made you scream inwardly, I think. How involved are you in a local body of believers versus how involved are you with the things of this world?
So what's the next thing that brings revival? So firstly, wake up. Next, do a spiritual triage. Strengthen what remains and what's about to die. What's next? Remember. Remember what you have received and what you've heard. We need to teach and support sound doctrine. We need to defend the Bible and its teachings. We need to unashamedly say, hey, look, this is what the Bible says, period. And it's not my job to make you feel good. It's my job to tell you what the Bible says, right? And it's not your job as a Christian to make other people feel good. It's your job to share with them the truth in love and explain, hey, God loves you right where you are, absolutely, but he also loves you enough to not leave you where you are. And so he died that you wouldn't just stay here. He died so that you would be sanctified and Christ-like and redeemed and renewed. And what that requires is some acknowledgement of guilt and sin and some repentance. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. That is our job. Remember what you have received and what you've heard. We never outgrow the gospel. Did you know that? Never. You know, sometimes people say, well, I I want spiritual, I, I want meat and not milk. Okay, fine. But you know what washes down a good meal? Milk, some kind of liquid, right? Have you ever had the, um, the privilege of having some meat so dry that you can't swallow? I have. You know what I desperately wanted right then? Something to drink. We never outgrow the gospel. It is what we need to remind ourselves. So I don't know if any of these, you know, the royal birth, the skilled warrior, the gifted servant, the loving neighbor, all those four that I came up with, do you know? How easily you'll forget that unless you remind yourself that it is the gospel that brought you there. It is the gospel that gave that to you. It is, it is the gospel that, that makes those things true. And so what's the fourth thing he says? He says to keep it. Hold on to it. Have a passion and a zeal, a boldness and a faith. Cling to it. And then lastly, he says there, repent. Repent from self-sufficiency. Repent from the production of the plastic fruit that we do in our own work and our own power and that we do to set on the shelf so that other people will come into our house and say, man, that's some beautiful fruit they have sitting there. God doesn't want beautiful fruit. He wants a tree that produces it. What I'm saying is, is is this all just religion or is this relationship? Because for this church, the one that he's talking to right now in the text, it has become religion. I know your works. I know you look real good on the outside, but you're dead, he says. So I want to close with this. Take heart, beloved, because Jesus will reward the reliable and he recognizes that. And, and so I want you to be encouraged for a couple of things. He, he says, strengthen what remains and what is about to die. And so however maybe inadequate you might have felt so far, and I'm sorry for that, understand that faith as small as a mustard seed, right? I mean, a, a candle in the window still produces light, right? He says a broken uh, how, how's it go? I'm going to misquote it probably. A, a broken, he won't, ah, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. That's the other part of that that I, that I wanted to, to 
You can Google that and find out what the first half of that says. A broken reed he won't break, but that doesn't make sense. A bent reed he won't break? I don't know. He's not going to destroy a broken reed. So here's my point. If you're broken or you're feeling bad about this, understand there's revival here, right? You might be a little ember that's not a fire yet, but guess what? The Holy Spirit can you into a flame. And so pray for that because Jesus will reward the reliable. He will not just allow you to continue to die. It's not, it's not his nature. If that was his nature, he would have never sent his son to the cross in the first place. He is about the business of wooing and bringing back. He is the father standing outside looking for the prodigal child. He is the one who leaves the 99 to find the one that is walking away. He is the one who calls the dead out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out. He is the one who is the resurrection and the hope and the life. And Jesus can use your smoldering wick to bring the fire of revival, and he will not snuff it out. Amen. And he tells us that he will give us a garment of white because we will be worthy. He tells us that he will give us a guarantee that our names will be in the book of life of which no one can bring them out. And in these people's time frame who die wool in this city that they were in, they would have understand. They would have understood just like we do. It can be very clear when somebody's garments are tarnished and are, dilt, uh, are dirty, but he says, I'm going to give you new ones. So, to close, with Chuck Swindoll, this is what he says. He alone grants spiritual vitality to those with a comatose or dying faith. In light of his urgent alarm to Sardis, all of us who tend towards spiritual stupor, must turn from stale religious routine and embrace the abundant life only Jesus Christ can provide. He extends a sincere invitation to you right now. If you feel the stiffness of spiritual rigor mortis setting in, take Christ's words to heart, wake up and declare your devotion. I want to say, I think Swindle is right. And so I'm going to ask you, wake up. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We praise you for this word that you have to this church, and we ask that you would apply it to our own hearts this morning. God, as we close out in a, in a time of song, we also ask that you would bring our hearts to you, that you would reconcile us to yourselves, that if any of us are here and we're thinking to ourselves, maybe this is me, maybe I need to wake up. God, we pray that you would bring revival to us right now, that you would help us to come to you and we would experience the power of the living one. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Mm-hmm.